Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Roger Thornhill of DeanHaspiel.com. <laughs> and I'm Eve Kendall of JoshNewfeld.com. And together we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. But today we're here to talk about minute number 136 of North by Northwest, which starts with a man reaching for a woman's hand clinging to the side of Mount Rushmore and ends with the same man pulling that same woman up towards him. Wow, that's a long minute of reaching and <laughs> that's a lot pulling of reaching and stretching and, and, and cajoling and <laughs> that's right. urging. <laughs> Which I do think this entire end sequence is about. I, I just don't know where you're getting that idea from. Oh, I mean, you'll see, I, is there a payoff to this metaphor? I, one more minute. <laughs> okay. Just give me one more minute. I can't make it. <laughs> Neither can the audience. <laughs> So, what, what do you have a breakdown of the scene, and then I have some thoughts. I do. So, yes, we start with a couple hanging desperately off the side of the mountain. Eve is very tired. His hand is slipping. He looks up, kind of annoyed, and Leonard's standing there with the statue. And Roger says, help, help me. <laughs> Leonard moves forward. Will he help? He looks like he might. But he slowly moves forward and steps on Roger's hand, but kind of gently, but still very rude. Roger looks again annoyed, like, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. Now Leonard seems calm, determined. Bang! A shot rings out. Leonard's foot slowly tilts. The statue drops and bursts open. The microfilm falls out. Leonard falls. Roger and Eve see him fall. Then we see a shot of the top of the mountain. The ranger is up there with a gun. The professor has returned. He's looking with a pair of binoculars, and it's the professor Marianne says, and Gilligan. <laughs> they're all there. Everybody. Right. Uncle Skip Ben. And the skipper, too. <laughs> Aunt Owen. Um, the professor says, Thank you, Sergeant. And then Van Damme. Our villain says, that wasn't very sporting, using real bullets. A little callback to the whole fake bullet thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's some stretching, some grunting, some pulling. Here, reach, now, I'm trying. Come on, I've got you. Up, I can't make it. Yes, you can. Come on, pull harder. <laughs> and then come along, Mrs. Thornhill. What does that mean? Mrs. Thornhill, who's that? that that's Roger's mother, right? Or, oh, geez, <laughs> I didn't think of it like that. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to find out the next minute what it all means. Yeah. The last minute. It you better know, answer because I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's rewind a little bit. This minute employs two more famous cinematic tropes. In the last minute, we discussed how many amazing tropes were used. Yes. You know, narrative tropes for cliffhangers and whatnot and the drama of cinema. In this one, Leonard, who is played by Martin Landau steps on Cary Grant's hand in an effort to make him lose his grip and send both him and Eva Marie Saint falling to their deaths. And that's like the first kind of famous trope in this minute, that the whole, you know, the, the foot on the hand. How many times do you see that in so many movies, right? And it always works. Mm -hmm. You're always wondering what's going to happen. Are they going to die? Like, 
Have you ever had anybody step on your hand? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Not while hanging off cliffs, but, you know, for one reason or another, people have ended up usually like involving the game of Twister or something. Oh, but... <laughs> right, which you play a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like your Friday <laughs> night. our number one. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think it's ever happened to me. I, I feel like maybe emotionally it has. I don't know. I, I have to think about emotionally. it. Emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my hand crushed emotionally. Oh. No, I've had my hand hurt. Uh, been yeah, no, things have happened. I'm not going to get into it right now, but absolutely, physically, I, ha- I have one of my fingers is bent a little sideways because of that. Didn't you? Something happened to your hand? Yeah, I mean, I've broken three fingers playing basketball right, at various right. times, okay. but right. not because of anyone stepping on my hand. Yes, you weren't in that kind of danger. Yeah. Uh, the other, the second one, the other trope is uh, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint are saved by a single gunshot. When Martin Landau is killed by a park ranger. Mom- Wait, Martin Landau actually was killed by a park N- ranger? No, the character. Uh, the character, Leonard. Okay, Leonard got it, got it. Jerk. Phew. Um, so this was brilliantly shown via a close-up of Landau's shoe pressing against Cary Grant's fingers. And then the sound of a gunshot, which makes Landau's shoe release the pressure and lean off and tilt sideways. You know, showing that he falls to his death. And I thought, like, that's a cool way to portray it because you could have done a far shot where you see him standing and his body get hit and then he falls over. No, they did it with the shoe. Mm -hmm. And it's because that is the present danger. That is what we're focusing on. Right. And I thought that was a great way to show that. Would they do that in a modern film, do you think? I think they would. I think cinema's only gotten better in a lot of ways. I mean, Hitchcock is a master, clearly, Mm -hmm. you know, and one of a kind and rare. But I do think that, yeah, they would still do stuff like that. I wonder if they would make things move a little bit faster and show more not quite such tight close-ups and a and little bit more, like, leading the audience by the hand. I would hazard I that know. almost has to do with the budget of the film. Mm. Because that's a low-budget trick that he used, in a way. Right, exactly. Just to see the foot and the hand mm-hmm. and tell the story there yeah. would be something you could do on a shoestring budget, you mm-hmm. know, because you don't need a mountain at that point, you know? We talk a lot in comics about closure, which is a term that Scott McCloud coined, I think, you know, which is where the reader is forced to, by making inferences between the way two panels relate to each other about filling in the action that happened in between mm-hmm. and kind of actively participating in the story in that sense that they are filling in those details. And I feel like Hitchcock maybe used these techniques of closure in a lot of, in some of mm-hmm. his movies. Like mm-hmm. we talked about before in Psycho where we never actually see the knife killing her or hitting her flesh, but okay. we are imagining it in that way that our act of closure makes it more terrifying and, and violent than what we're actually seeing on screen. There's a lot of implication in, in Hitchcock's directing, yeah. you know, and again, he engages the audience in that way, mm-hmm. you know, and it lets you kind of decipher and figure out, even when it's blatant, you know, exactly. there's a poetry to it, mm-hmm. you know. Did you have any more thoughts about this scene and what happens narratively and, and you know, for the entire movie, like what's going on here? Well, I guess, I, I mean, I, I felt like I was getting to it a little bit in my, you know, sort of semi-humorous rundown that I felt like in some ways the scene is a little like underplayed the tension of it mm-hmm. and that the character acting is like a little flat or a little less intense than, again, we might expect from a contemporary film. And... I was just trying to, yeah, be interested what you think about that, because I know we've talked before about how Hitchcock wanted his actors to basically, you know, be 
not automatons, but sort of like he was the puppet master and they would do what he needed to do. If they needed to look up because that led to the next shot, then they would have to look up. And I felt like in this scene, it gets back to the sort of underlying semi-humorous quality of this whole movie. And again, alludes a little bit to like the Roger Moore era of James Bond or something where you never quite felt that the protagonist was in as much danger as he might be just objectively because the main character, the Roger Moore version of James Bond was always sort of very arch and winking at the audience. You never felt like he was really in extremists, you Mm -hmm, know, and mm -hmm. there's sort of a similar kind of feeling here. Like maybe it's all a little bit not so realistic. Well, I'm thinking about like sit in Hitchcock's chair for a second. The more interesting part of the scenes in the movies is the tension, is the drama, is he going to get killed or is she going to get killed or yeah. get caught or whatever. And when you know you're leading up to the payoff, which is they're going to survive and win mm-hmm. or prevail, it's, it's almost an anticlimax in a way. Because just as moviegoers, we're confident enough, we've seen enough movies to know that it's always going to work out for the Usually for the good it works guys. out yeah. for the good guys. So you're just trying to figure out how to get there, right? Right. So all the good stuff, the fun stuff, the way to be clever, to keep kind of like pushing it so that, you know, how many more obstacles can we have here before we arrive at the fact that they are going to survive, mm-hmm. you know? So now we're coming to that moment. And in a way, it's like, well, I guess we'll just get there now. Right. You know? It's a fait accompli and we'll right. just do it by the numbers in a sense. In a but, sense. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of arguing both sides because on the other hand, I was agreeing with you that it's masterfully done and that he uses, you know, he engages the audience and in, into the action in a lot of ways. And, you know, every shot is so perfectly composed and like it's all structured exactly the way that you would want it done. But think about if we're using the sexual erotic metaphor, the romantic angle of this sequence. Yeah. The pressure of Landau's shoe pushing against Mm -hmm. and then it goes limp, ergo flaccid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I mean, and and I think we'd already established that the Martin Landau character earlier was in this sort of interesting position of like he he was playing this role as if he were in love with Van Damme and that there was this sexual tension between them you know, as evidence earlier in the film. And then there was a, a time when Leonard said, it, it's my woman's intuition, but mm-hmm. I am doing this. And there was a lot of that kind of like cute little wink, wink kind mm-hmm. of wordplay that was popular in movies of that mm-hmm. era because they had to use subtext for everything. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock famously, you know, was a devotee of Freud and of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and used a lot of those ideas which were becoming popular in mm-hmm. that time in his movies. But I think to double down on this idea that this last scene is not played as quite as seriously or dramatically as it could have been was the line that Van Damme delivers after... So he's been captured. He's up at the top of the cliff with the professor and the, the rangers and, and, and the whole group that's going to, you know, rescue everybody. And after he sees his number one dude killed, he just makes this witty little quip that wasn't very sporting using real bullets, which, of course, is a reference back to the scene where Eve, quote unquote, shot Roger with the gun that was loaded with blanks. And so, like, that's the best that he can say is he, he's been captured 
Last we saw him, he was victorious. He was about to get on this private plane and fly back off to his country. And now he's been captured and he's just quietly standing there. I like this idea that the professor and the rangers captured them. And then they're like, okay, now come with us to the uh, mountain because we want to make sure that everything's going to be okay. So just come along. And he just obligingly came along. And then he makes this little witty, totally like uh, Dr. No or or Blofeld sort of like witty comment as he's being captured and led away. Well, I have two thoughts about that. One is you said shooting blanks. Again, another sexual oh, metaphor. Oh, boy. <laughs> I just can't help it. It just doesn't it's stop. A dirty mind. <laughs> but, I mean, if you go back to the first time those characters meet, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint, mm-hmm. like within two minutes, she's like, you know, blowing out a, a match with mm-hmm. her lips in a very sexual way. Yeah. And it's always been sexual. Their yeah. entire relationship yes. you know, is leading up to this crescendo of a scene you know mm-hmm. um and then the to bad guys are kind of you know was there's this idea of shooting blanks and then the one bullet that does hit and does serve to prevail to let our characters become heroes in a way mm-hmm. and the other thing i thought was interesting was there's kind of like an idea of how intelligent does the author think the audience is mm. because there's some stuff that happens off screen those park rangers, the bad guys showing up on top of uh, right. Mount Rushmore. That happens all off screen, how they mm-hmm. got captured or, you know, you have to put two and two together there. Yeah. And Hitchcock is letting you do that part of the right, job. Right, Because that part didn't matter to him. It's almost like, mm-hmm. again, here, we're, com- we're going to come and everyone's going to win now. And right, here comes right. the winning part. So I don't yeah. really need to show all that stuff mm-hmm. because you can figure it out. I'm letting you be the smart ones to put two and two together. On right, that one. right. And as an audience member, you kind of don't care. You just want to see to make sure, oh, they got caught, they got caught. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this guy got shot, and then they're going to climb up the, you know. Right. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, at that scene where we see that the professor has captured Van Damme and he's not getting away, it makes you think, like, I wonder if Roger and Eve were like, oh, great. Thanks a lot. We had to go climbing down freaking Mount Rushmore. <laughs> When you'd already caught the bad guy, right. like, you know, there's a part of you that is like, was this whole like climbing scene on Mount Rushmore, like totally right. unnecessary, but it's good entertainment <laughs> anyway. And then there's this like interesting thing that happens at the end of this minute where again, it's about this reaching, this pulling and, you know, and where's that going to lead to, mm-hmm. you know, you think it's just that he's uh, Cary Grant is going to lift her up, right? But surprise, surprise, and we'll talk about that in the next and the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any more thoughts? Because I have some questions. Well, I mean, yeah, just to further on that thought, like there's this really interesting cut that happens literally in the last like two seconds of this minute, where it's this desperate moment. They're hanging off the side of a cliff. We don't even know if Roger's going to be able to hold on, let alone whether he'll be able to rescue Eve. And she's saying, I can't do it. And he's Mm -hmm. saying, you can do it, pull harder. And then as he pulls her up, there's this seamless cut where all of a sudden, wait, we're not on the mountain anymore. We're somewhere else. And this is a lighthearted moment and he's pulling her up and she's wearing white now. She's not wearing what she was before. I don't know what is going on. So, I mean, it's actually a perfect cut for us doing this minute by minute because it will lead into the very last scene in the movie. But I mean, that's something that I don't know if I've ever seen in any other movie. Mm -hmm. And it's such a classic, like I would say of the top five things that people think about this movie, 
what comes to mind would be what the airplane scene mm-hmm. out in the fields, mm-hmm. the climbing across Mount Rushmore, right. maybe her shooting him with the fake bullets. Right. But this moment, which is in the very last minute of the movie, of him pulling her to safety, and then it turns out that they're that we move forward in time. Yes. I assume right. we will find out next episode. That's right. That's that right. is such a unusual and interesting choice and a way of totally breaking the tension that we had mm-hmm. built up all this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, I feel like it was just an effort to like, okay, we get it already. He is presuming a certain intelligence of his audience. Yeah. Go, you know, this is how this, we knew we were going to come to this, you know, mm-hmm. unless the character dies. Right. Either or, you know, or one of the characters dies. Like, how are we going to end this? So he cuts to the chase in a way. Yeah. Finally, after all this kind of foreplay, he gets to where it needs to go. Foreplay? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's ironic because Hitchcock, who's considered, I think, one of the great filmmakers for shooting scenes of action and, and mm-hmm. like, drama, you know, in this scene, which is on the page, would be very dramatic with all of this people in peril and, you know, stepping on feet and getting hit by bullets and all of that stuff. He really does want to just get through it as quickly as possible. And also, it's a long movie. So it's at 137 minutes, I think. It's two hours and 17, 17 minutes. minutes. And I think that movies didn't run that long in general. Mm-hmm. Now you're, they're more accepting of it, at least with blockbusters and oh, like yeah. Marvel movies. And yeah, what was the end game? was over three hours, right? And then the Irishman recently is really long. Yeah. So like there might have been some nipping and tucking, mm-hmm. you know, at that point. Well, and, famously, the movie studio did tell Hitchcock that the movie was running long and they asked him to cut it and he said oh okay and he looked at his contract and then he cut the movie by like six seconds and he handed it back to them he said my contract says I have final cut so wow here you go wow (laughs) that's awesome but again that so it was a concern you Mm -hmm. know and I think it was a once we get to the last minute I think it was a great way to end the movie yeah you know yeah so so I didn't really know how to fashion this question because I was thinking about it a little bit and maybe I need to explore the question more. But what I thought was uh, the deaths of these two henchmen, you know, ambiguously am- amoral characters possibly, and their mission to win their side of a war makes me think about my own sense of patriotism and what lengths I would go to in order to win. Hmm. Have you ever thought about being in that kind of a position? And what you would do. You describe how Martin Lando's character Leonard, in last episode, mm-hmm. there's this moment of like, you know, is he or isn't he? Or what is his feeling about what is happening on this mountainside and what he needs to do in order to get the microfiche, you know, from the, the sculpture. And yeah. it, basically his mission statement. You know, regardless if he's in love with the master villain or not, mm-hmm. he still has a job to do. Right. You know? And the lengths that one will go to in order to complete, you know, your mission. It made me think, like, could I have been, you know, we call them a henchman, but they're people too, you know. And <laughs> henchmen are people too. Interior lives and <laughs> hopes and dreams. And so, but they're regulated to being like having a certain function. Right? Yeah. Uh, so don't really get to know them. Right. You know? Well, especially the Valerian character, even though he's right. in the movie, like from beginning to end, we don't really don't know get any about. sense of what he is like. But like because these are these a lot of these characters are fleshed out, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you well, get Leonard to, certainly is right. So like it just made me think about like you know there's a difference from go, I guess putting on a, a soldier's uniform and going yeah. to war. That's what versus, that's what I think about. Yeah, like this spy game that you're playing mm-hmm. and the the twists and turns and the double crosses and yeah and actually dealing with 
Because if I'm correct, Eva Marie Saint was an ally to him at one point, possibly, and now to she isn't. Van Damme? Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what it was thought. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're kind of waiting for another person to double cross or what's going to happen next. Right, or, you right. Know, and I don't know. I was just thinking about, like, I was thinking about that. And, and then as a second part to the question, what would you be willing to do if you were in Cary Grant's shoes? Do you feel that he was being a good patriot or simply trying to save the woman he fell in love with or both? Hmm. Yeah. Right? And it's not explored necessarily in the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in a way, the idea that he just needed to survive, to live, you know, mm-hmm. like these people are trying to kill him, you know, for this thing that he has. Right. But is he doing it because he's trying to help America? Well, if you do remember, there is a scene, I guess it was about a half an hour earlier in the film, which is when he met up with the professor, when the professor kind of appeared and explained what was going on and that Eve was actually a double agent and that she wasn't this bad person and, you know, that she'd been kind of forced into this position and had betrayed him. And the Roger Thornhill character was confronted with the idea of, like, he could just give up now and sort of let things play out or he could as a patriotic american decide to now be an active member of this story as it was going because up until that moment he had been through mistaken identity right being like forced into this role of them thinking he was george kaplan and totally you know who actually was a spy etc etc so he does make an active choice, but very begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to, but he feels like he has to because he wants to do right by Eve. Mm-hmm. So he never fully commits. He never becomes like the super patriotic guy willing to do whatever for his country. It's more for selfish reasons, I guess, or maybe more like chivalric reasons. Mm-hmm. And, I would say it's a combination you know, of chivalry and selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe with a drop of patriot. I mean, if he can get away with being, and I was a hero for America too. Right, you right. Know? Like in a way, this could be, I think today if they made this film, because of the universe building of a lot of characters, I have a feeling there would be like three more movies of this character, following mm-hmm. this character. Right, well, that know, Roger was Thornhill. James Bond. <laughs> which was then called James Bond. <laughs> like, so, and I guess Hitchcock never did a sequel to a movie or, or revisited a character, did he? Any of That's movies. a great question. I don't think so. I don't think can't so. think of anything. But I feel like this movie would have definitely had sequels. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, today, if, if you but know. then like a James Bond movie, would he all of a sudden be with a new woman, a new uh, Thornhill girl? So twenty twenty, you might follow her story. Would be the That's sequel. That's true. That's you know? true. I mean, because she, you know, I hate to say it. I mean, clearly she needed help surviving as did he but Mm -hmm. he did all the saving at the end of the day right well when we're first introduced to her she is more than capable like of you know being a double agent but also like taking care of herself and and knowing what she wants both like in life and sexually and you know she's a confident strong intriguing female character but if you think about it the thing that kind of derails her a little bit is clothing how so well the shawl Right. The purse. But that was because heels, women are forced heels. into wearing those things, <laughs> By <right>? other women. <laughs> I don't think... The fashion industry. I don't think men create that kind of fashion. I think it's other women. Oh, that. I don't know. But I do think, in a way, that she has to shed all that to sure. kind of get to the root of who she is, you yeah. know, and, and ultimately where this movie is going to wind up in the next minute. Mm-hmm. But getting back to your original question, like, where would I find myself, like, you know, having to make those choices and stuff, I think... That's a fascinating question. I don't, I mean, I've never served in the military. I volunteered, you know, with the Red Cross after Hurricane Katrina because I felt like there was something that I could do to help my fellow citizens. 
but there was nothing heroic about that as much as it was like a confluence of, I have time in my life to do this. This is important enough for me to do, but I wasn't taking my life in my hands in any way that I felt obvious. So, And you were able to actually turn that, some of that story into something else, into your art. Yeah, I mean, and later that sort of led to my book, A.D. New Orleans After the Deluge, about Hurricane Katrina, but that was never part of the original plan. It just kind of turned out that way. But yeah, I often have asked myself, and I'm I'm sure you did over the years, especially when we were younger and it was sort of more like, you know, we could have been drafted into a war and would it have been a war that we supported politically? And if we did, would you be willing to go and kill for your country? And I mean, those are the kind of choices that as a soldier, maybe, like you were saying, maybe are a little easier to make, but as a spy or as like a secret agent or an or, intelligence member, that's really hard yeah. to imagine. And then think about Roger Thornhill, you know, Cary Grant's character, he just gets thrown into it. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, that's traditional as well. Like that's a case of like, that could have been you. You may not right. be that character in that yeah. job or maybe even in that situation, but maybe you could get into a situation. You know, where that happened, where you'd have to ask those questions to yourself. Like, right. Do I try to get out of this or am I, can I get out of mm-hmm. it? And what do I do next? And I think that's why the best movies and, and books, you know, when I was younger, I read a lot of like uh, detective stories and spy thrillers and books by like John le Carre and, and folks like that. I read books by Tom Clancy and, you know, got into a lot of those kind of books and th- Judy Bloom. Yes. <laughs> she wrote great spy thrillers. Um, the power of those movies and the books when they're well written is that you feel like the character is making a difficult choice to do the things that they're doing. It's not just like, okay, automatically I do these things. And that's what enables you as a viewer or as a reader to kind of throw yourself into that same situation and ask yourself, what would you do? And, you know, most of us, like the vast majority of us, never have to make that kind of choice in their life, that life or death choice or that question of what would you do for your country, you know? And it gets very complicated depending on who's the president at what time and, you know, what do you think your country stands for and all those kinds of real life ethical issues that we have to wrangle with. So it's an eternal question. And I think movies like this, when they're done well, and I think this movie's done very well, kind of get you thinking about those kinds of things. So I have no real answer. I don't know if you have an answer for those questions either, but it's exactly these kind of movies that initiate those discussions. I mean, I would like to think that it's funny. I don't know if I would do it for my country necessarily. Although if I was told that I had this little piece of information that could, I don't know. I mean, I guess when you give it that kind of power and that kind of importance, then Mm -hmm. maybe that's what drives you, Mm -hmm. you know? And you're like, wow, I could make or break this situation. Right. And what do I have to do? And could it possibly kill me? Mm -hmm. And then you're thinking, well, how do I eradicate myself from it? Can can I hide from it and never bury it? Or like, (laughs) so that no one's looking at me, you know? Those are the characters you never see in movies who do that. (laughs) (laughs) They don't last too long. That's not a long enough movie. But I guess I would like to think that I would try to do whatever is, quote, the right thing. Well, we both lived in New York City on September 11, 2001. We were there when the planes hit the towers and the towers came down. And we found out, you know, quite quickly that it was Al-Qaeda and it's Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera. Do you remember feeling at that time like a certain burst of patriotic fervor or a sense of wanting revenge against those people in particular? That's a good question. I want to say 
I felt more a sense of uh, camaraderie with New Yorkers. Yes. For sure. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Not necessarily people from Wisconsin, not to disparage Wisconsin or California or whatever. Or South Dakota. Or or even South Dakota. But like, yeah, I definitely felt like it was a New York problem, even though it was turned out to be worldwide, Mm -hmm. you know? And I had never heard of Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden. I just didn't know who those people were. Mm -hmm. And I did have a kind of, not cynical but let's say an aware response of like me thinking how much of this is our fault, mm-hmm. you know, because I do think that it takes two to tango, you know, sometimes and one response to the other, not necessarily that's the right thing that would happen at all, you yeah. know, but we're not totally innocent mm-hmm. as Americans. As a country, right. And I think this is a term that a lot of people use. I felt like, you know, New York lived in a certain kind of bubble and our bubble was burst mm-hmm. that day. And in a way, we actually joined America even more so that day, even though America and the world was joining New York City in solidarity of sorts. Very well said. Yeah, I think. And then again, like just the idea of getting on an F train and everyone's looking at each other Mm -hmm. and you want to say, are you okay? Right. There was a lot of stay safe feelings going on and a lot of people like meeting eyes. Like in New York, we famously don't ever stare into a stranger's eyes, but there was a lot more yep. of that, a lot more hugging strangers. And That's right. it was actually like a moment that really brought us all together as this very diverse community, all as New Yorkers, all having suffered the same thing, That's you know, right. in different ways. So. Yep. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We felt more like New Yorkers than Americans, but then in the end, we became more like America. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, any more thoughts? Are no, we... I'm just really confused about this last couple of seconds. I'm wondering <laughs> sort of what's going to happen what's next, gonna where it's going to all lead. Well, with that in mind, I want to uh, remind our listeners that you and I did a podcast called Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. We have well, a, we're on hiatus, we're on but hiatus it's right still now. an active podcast. That's yeah. right. And there's about 30 plus episodes mm-hmm. where we break down the movie American Splendor featuring uh, the work and life of Harvey Picar. We also discuss ourselves as young rookie cartoonists in the you know 80s and 90s with this dream to make comics and how that all worked out in conjunction with the film and with working uh, with Harvey Picar as well on mm-hmm. his comics. Uh, and also I'd like to remind everyone that you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, HitchcockMinute.com. And on the social medias, we're available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Please join us here tomorrow when we get to the last minute of North by Northwest. Wherever you are.